Good afternoon, witches and assorted beautiful people. It's time for our seasonal deep dive into star lore and this neglected corner of the cosmic witchcraft universe. It looks like the theme of this season for me is sitting with the discomfort of not being perfect. Could just say, well, let's change the release time, but that would only buy me some extra time to feel the pressure to meet a deadline. So it is what it is. I'll try to be out on Thursdays, UK time, might be Thursday in LA if I have to. A disclaimer if you are new to this show, myself and most of the audience, according to the gods of the chart data, are in the Northern Hemisphere. So I cover that when it comes to pagan holidays as that's, it's the topic today, meteor showers. Although I try to give as much info as I can about what's happening in the southern hemisphere, if something happens at the same time as is the case with one of today's showers. Also welcome, I'm so glad to meet you. In store for us today are three constellations, the Draconids, Taurids and Leonids. And before I jump into that, I wanted to give you a TLDR version for those that are new to these. Star magic is pretty simply the idea of using the energies of the cosmos in your magic. If you ever worked with planets, you have already done it because the sun is a star. What I aim to do with this podcast is expanding what people see and use in their magic beyond the zodiac, which is ironic when this time two of the constellations are zodiac ones. Anyway, you can listen to earlier episodes or wait for future meteor showers to learn about our myths and archetypes related to that. And you can check out the original Star Magic episode in Season 1 if you want to understand more about what these all means in practice. All links, etc. are as always in the show notes. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. I'm Alexis, your new witchy BFF. I'm known as Asteria in witch circles. I'm a photographer by day and star obsessed urban witch by night. Sometimes the opposite, often both at once. And I'm as star obsessed as Natsuki Shinomiya in Utapri. Or just a warning, there would be loads of otaku references. I'm a Capricorn Sun, Scorpio Moon and Scorpio Rising. Probably a Lyran Star Seed, a Tarot Lover and all of my lipsticks have a spell on them. I started this podcast to share my passion and the empowerment and self-love that Cosmic Witchcraft brought into my life. Come every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business and magic that blend the practical with the wool. I bring you all out history geek solo episodes and amazing guests to explore the ways in which we can bring more enchantment into our lives. Ready to live life limitless? Then let's dive into today's episode. First off, we have the Draconids between the 6th and the 10th of October. 
This meteor shower originates from the parent body of the periodic comet Jacobini Zener. A periodic comet is one with orbital periods of less than 200 years and a couple of other possibilities, but basically it has a shortish orbit and passes close to the Sun more frequently than other types. The meteors are named after the constellation Draco, Draco, if you have that accent, where they appear to have come from. Almost those meteors, which fall towards the Earth a blade long, before reaching the surface, which I'm not a scientist, so don't take this as gospel truth. But I, as I understand it, it's where we, like, it's what we tend to think of when we think of seeing a meteor. And the Draconids are best viewed after sunset in an area with a clear dark sky. And this year they will be falling during the waning moon, so it's a good year if you want to go see them. Of course, if you, like me, are an urban witch trying to find the constellations with nice sky on your iPhone, that doesn't mean you can't bring their magic into your life. They are there even when we don't see them. Just makes it for a cute date or date with yourself if you have access to a good viewing spot. As for the constellation, it's one of the constellations that were listed by Ptolemy all the way back in late antiquity. The north pole of the Earth's elliptic around the Sun is in Draco, and as such is circumpolar from northern latitudes, meaning that it never sets and can be seen at any time of year. So now that we got the astronomy down, it's time to bring in the magic. The Draco constellation is named after the Latin word for dragon. And this is where it gets fun if you are a mythology geek. And if you're not, the Star Magic episodes are probably not going to be your cup of tea. Just saying. Anyway, there are a bazillion mythological dragons in Greek mythology alone. Given the Norpole connection and how common it is in the ancient texts, I'm inclined to think it was the dragon from the myth of the battle of the giants against the Olympians. However, the identification of the constellation with the dragon who guarded the golden apples of the Asperides is also a great one, so maybe we'll talk about that too. Before we look at specific dragons, let's talk about dragons in general. The word dracon refers to large constricting snakes and it was more associated with poisonous spirits than breathing fire, like it came to be associated with dragons in the West because they were used to depict hell in medieval iconography. It is the name for the male dragon, as she-dragons were called Dracaena and were a little different. The distinction is somewhat important because there's lore where they started dynasties with the heroes, rather than being the villain of the story as their male counterparts are. That's the case, for example, of the Scythian monarchy, which claims to descend from the Dracaena Scythiaechina, who bore Heracles, also known as Heracles' bloodline, as well as begetting monsters with her actual husband. It is believed, however, that she derives from an earlier Earth goddess, which I find fascinating since she then came to be associated with rotten things, 
and there uh, I guess darker side of fertility and the earth maybe there's a topic in these four future episodes it's not like I need to be begged to go on a feminist rant looking at how women are depicted across culture to be honest so there were four types of creatures in Greek mythology that would qualify as dragons and the one we are talking about today is consistently associated with guarding something like a sacred spring or the apples I mentioned now indulge me here for bringing my own bias into the conversation but these showers are taking place after the autumn equinox at a time of preparation for winter to me it seems like an invitation to look at where we need to become the keepers of the treasure rather than the hero the word dragon itself originates from drac the auris stem of Durkestai. And, oh my goddess, I cannot believe I ever used the word aorist after high school. It's one of the tenses in Greek verbs, if you're wondering. Anyway, derkestai means to see clearly. One translation that my favourite pastime etym online gives for dragon is the one with the deathly stare. But I don't think that was the point of the myth. Someone in charge or guarding a treasure needs to have discernment. Is this a threat? How big of a threat is it? How much effort should I put into handling it? Because when you say yes to something, you say no to something else. So it affects the circumstances around you. There is wisdom required of being a guardian. So maybe the dragon had a deathly stare. I think the dragon was a wise guardian that could see into you. Maybe that level of sin through you scares people to death too. Just my take, anyway. But I hope I'm showing you just how much potential is hidden in a single archetype. It's a fairly big constellation with a number of significant stars, and Richard Hinckley Allen goes into that in his book Star Names, which is in the public domain if you want to read it for yourself. A TLDR version is that ancient lore beyond Greece also echoes this theme of judgment that I've been talking about, as well as a connection of the pole to the idea of heaven. In fact, for the ancients, it was Alpha Draconis or Thuban which was the North Pole star, not Polaris. And that, if I remember correctly, changed about the 1800s. Anyway, we are in Libra season when this shower will happen. And while the constellation is in fact nowhere near, since it's found in the Southern Hemisphere, I feel like the symbolism is strong. And it also gives us some scope for rethinking the archetype of judgment in the tarot, away from the very Christian connotation that it often has. Even though the Draco constellation has had many Christian symbols attached to it over the centuries. Maybe one day I will cross that bridge and touch on the topic of Christian magic, but today is not the day. Although it's ironic, because what I'm about to mention is strictly linked to this, too. Anyway, my homeboy Eteya 
in his tarot deck attach Libra to the seventh card. Support or protection is pulled reversed, which represented the fifth day of creation. And if you look at the imagery in the, on the card in this deck, prominent in the foreground is a snake. And the card is associated by many to the Empress in the later list of the Major Arcana, except one where James W. Revac compares the Grand Detail to the Tarot de Marseille and make it correspond to the Emperor. Which I guess is kinda ironic. When you think about the idea behind it being balanced, because the fifth day of creation was when the water and sky animals were made. As above, so below. It's everywhere in nature. Anyway, we know of the existence of sea snakes, so presumably that was we see in the deck. Even if the snake is on the ground, which is how they lay their eggs anyway, so maybe that is another layer. And maybe all that there is to it is that he needed an animal that had a motive to be above ground. I'll find out eventually, because I can read French and his books are in the public domain, but it's a nice coincidence. So going back to the two myths, we have one where Athena fought a giant serpent and eventually threw him into the sky where it froze in place of this constellation, and the association with wisdom and knowledge is seen in a animal familiars, owls and serpents. Athena is by some seen as linked to Gemini, and I can see the argument, but I also can see the argument for Libra, as they are both dualistic air signs. An asteroid in astrology is from the asteroid belt rather than being a moon to a planet, and the correspondences fit both signs. So to me it's a good one to work with for the themes of this season especially related to creativity. Which goes back to the theme of this season of the podcast too. I didn't even do it on purpose. Anyway, the other myth is also relevant to this conversation as the dragon was defeated by Heracles in order to take the golden apple of the Asperides, which was his 11th labor by the way. The dragon has little to do with that myth though as it was placed by Hera to guard the tree that bore the apples from the nymph of the garden who would often take the fruits for themselves. The tree was originally planted by Gaia at a request after the goddess had loved Gaia's wedding gifts so much, so again the theme of protecting what you care about comes on. You're welcome to disagree with my interpretations. I'm no teacher imparting dogmatic wisdom here. Just a human design manifesto giving 70% of the population something to respond to. And if you are a fellow non-sacral and I give something to you too, then that's great. I'm glad. My goal here is to empower you to empower yourself to build a practice that supports you. That is one of my golden apples. Next we have the Taurids between the 20th of October and the 10th of December for the Northern Hemisphere and it has different dates for the Southern Hemisphere. But it's happening around the same time. I think it goes on from September the 23rd and may finish slightly later than the Northern counterpart. You can look it up. So starting still in Libra season, just about, I think. So I actually haven't checked. 
and ending in Saj, we find, as I said, the Tourids. This is one of those showers that has, as I said, the Southern Hemisphere version too. And it is believed that the Southern one originated from the comet Enki, while the Northern one is from an asteroid that probably also originated from Enki. But that's not a fact that astronomers have determined to be the closest possible thing to a truth. Enki herself is believed to be the remnant of a much larger comet, but even so, the Taurids are the largest measured stream in the inner solar system. And they are nicknamed Halloween fireballs, which tells you what kind of meteor to expect. If this is new to you, fireballs are very bright meteors. You can't miss them. You can see images online that likely had some editing to enhance the color balance and show that they literally look like they have a fire tail. While the Taurus constellation in astrology is mostly connected to Venus, a ruler, these meteors have especially been affected by the gravitational pull of Jupiter, which is technically named a perturbation, but I'm someone with a humanities degree, talking about magic. I'll put in layman's terms, even if it may not be entirely correct. Anyway, while it works out beautifully this year, since our planet of growth and expansion is retrograde in Taurus at the time of the shower, I think it also informs us about some of the themes we can associate with these stars. First of all, there are four stars above magnitude 3 in Taurus, two of which are in the Bahinian fit stars, which have a whole episode explaining what they are, but that you long didn't read, is that they are the medieval list of the most potent stars for star magic. So for a change, we actually have some tradition to back us. And of course, all of the Taurus themes from astrology are something you can choose to work with too. As for the myths itself, there are heavenly balls in all cultures across the ancient world. As far as Greek mythology, Jupiter comes back into play because the bull is associated with Zeus. In the myth of the rape of Europa, Zeus himself took the form of a bull to abduct the Phoenician princess. A heifer also appears in the myth of Io or Io in original Greek pronunciation, one of the many objects of Zeus' lust. A mortal princess of Argos who had to be turned into an animal to hide from Hera. And finally, a bull appeared in the Twelve Labors of Heracles too. While a genuine bull this time, the plot of that story is the animal has been damaging and destructive. So if you ask me, it could have been Zeus. I guess with Jupiter in the seventh house, I should not be this quick to express my disapproval of Hades' brother in case of cosmic repercussions. But come on, dude! He's been polyamorous and then there is whatever that was. Jupiter is not the only god with the bull connection in the Greek pantheon, and this is without considering just how common a sacred bull is across cultures. Dionysus was often referred to with that imagery, including an ancient myth where the titans slaughtered him in the form of a calf and then impiously feasted on his flesh. Of course, we are talking about rites that originated in agrarian societies, 
And even on a practical level, a bowl is quite a key part of wealth and abundance in that context. It's a sturdy yet gentle animal, except that it turns out quite powerful and in a destructive way if you push the right buttons. Now, I'm saying this, Jupiter exalted in Cancer makes little sense. Anyway, not the time and space for me to dismantle thousands of years of accepted beliefs in astrology. Moving on. When we look at the stars themselves, the two main ones are Aldebaran, or Alpha Tauri, and the star cluster of the Pleiades. Correspondences for Aldebaran are as gemstones, garnet and ruby, for plants, milthersals and woodruff, for planets, Mars and Venus, and then as meetings, honor, intelligence, eloquence, steadfastness, courage, honesty, and success. For the Pleiades, the gemstone is quartz, the plants are frankincense and fennel, the planets are Mars and the moon, and the themes are love, eminence, seeking inner knowledge, peace, and spirit communication. In ancient Greek, Aldebaran was called Lampadias, literally torch-like or torch-bearer. And the name we use to refer to it is from the Arabic tradition, where the meaning is turned upside down as it means the follower, in reference to the Pleiades. In astronomical terms, it's a red giant, so a dying star in the last stages of stellar evolution, which I think is very poetic since we're talking about going into Scorpio season where the theme is a lot about death and transformation and rebirth and things coming out of the ashes like a phoenix rising. I've talked about the Pleiades a bit already when covering the star seeds in the past. A hot blue luminous stars, also known as the Seven Sisters, in reference to their myth, though it is believed that the myth was created to explain the name, and it originated from the sailing tradition, as they demarcated the sailing season in the Mediterranean. Whether the chicken or the egg came in first, they are daughters of the oceanic nymph Pleione, whose name means to increase in numbers. She therefore presided over flocks. She is also technically one of the stars in the Pleiades, which reflects the story of one myth of Orion coming across them all travelling together and falling in love with the mother. Their names were Maya, Electra, Tegeti, Alcyone, Selino, Steropi and Merope and of course all have their own stories. Maya was the mother of Hermes, uh, you guessed it, Zeus, and also corresponds to nursery and growing. Electra, whom I have a personal connection since that's what my father wanted to call me, had two sons by Zeus and is considered to have played a part both in the history of Troyes and of Etruria. In one of the myths, she has a connection to Athena via the Palladium, which was her divine statue as Pallas Athena. She doesn't really have a clear correspondence in mythology, except these themes of protection, which is something that is a bit of an undertone if you read between the lines of all over myth. Then we have Tejiti, a companion of Artemis, 
as mistress of the animals. She was turned into a doe by the goddess so that she could escape the philanderer. She'd be a good vibe if you need to carry the Virgo themes into the rest of 2023. Halcyone is probably one of the better known of the Pleiades. For a change, she attracted the attention of Poseidon and bore him several children. Her name refers to a seabird with a mournful song, but it also speculates that it's speculated, can't even speak today, that her name derives from a combination of protection and help, or pleasing, so that can be translated both ways. If the marine themes are relevant to you, she could be a good archetype, as would Selino, also mother to Poseidon's children, whose name means the dark one. Finally, we have Styrope, whose name means lightning, and whom in some myth was attracted to Ares. And then another famous one, Mrope, the protector of sailors, called the Lost Star because she is the faintest of the Pleiades on account of having married a mortal. Most of these stars have a connection to the sea, but I think we can take that idea of being guidance to sailors that is inherent in being stars and work with it whenever we need guidance. The meteor showers itself does not have a direct connection to the fit stars except that they are all happening in the same place in the cosmos and as above, so below. Just because the falling pieces do not originate from the actual bodies of the fit stars, it doesn't mean we can't look at them as being messages sent to us symbolically. And of course, if you can go stargazing even better, you can literally see your sign come across the sky. But the point of magic is that there are energies and we can connect to them on a spiritual level. Can meditate on whatever you need a guiding star for and set the intention of connecting to the shooting star that is meant for you. Even if you can't see it beyond your mind's eye, the star will be there. Finally, taking place over the month of November, we have the Leonids. Leo 2 has a fit star and the meteor shower comes from the Temple Chattel Comet. And in pure Leo fashion, they are considered quite spectacular. It's it also my understanding that Jupiter influences them as it does the Taurids, so it's like a Bud's Lurman extravaganza of the natural world. Every 33 years, the comet gives us a proper meteor storm, so a precipitation in excess of a thousand meters per hour. We aren't due one until 2032, though, sadly. Who knows, maybe I'll still be podcasting in 10 years and we can have an episode about it. Anyway, they peak around mid-November. And I just realised I have no idea when the peak was for the other two, so I'll pause and look that up. So for the Draconids, it's the 8th and 9th of of October, sorry, and then the 13th of November in the Northern Taurids. So... Leonids, I already talked about Leo in the episodes on the Lionsgate portal, so I'll keep that brief. But the mythology is, as you can probably expect from the symbolism that we have to this day, one of power and royalty. 
It refers to the Nemean lion in Heracles' labors, as do a lot of the constellations, and it was a seemingly undefeatable beast whose skin could not be penetrated by human swords. In a twist that seems surprising, even the cunning shown by Heracles in the story of the golden apples of Desperides, he first uses his brains to trap the lion and then bare strength to kill him, and then he needs Athena to point out that the only thing that can skin the lion and therefore prove his success was the lion's own claws. But not going to lie, while it's sad to me that the goddess doesn't get the credit for her intervention, the idea that one of the biggest heroes in mythology needed a woman to point out the obvious is a favourite with me. The fifth star in the constellation is probably unsurprisingly Regulus, or Alpha Leonis, whose gems are garnet and granite, the planet is Mugworth, and the planet is Jupiter and Mars, and symbolism, power, success, and strength. So we see again similar themes to what we have discussed so far, and garnet being a crystal that could be a good addition to your tools if you like to work with crystals, you could even charge them with the showers. In fact, one of Garnet's correspondences is blood and life force, and one deity associated with it is Persephone, who in this season is returning to her husband in the underworld. And now I said blood, the resin known as dragon's blood has amplifying properties. Well, if you are looking for something that tangibly connects you to the draconids, that's one option that you have. And of course, both the Draconids and the Leonids have a lot of fire in them, so you likely don't need to go out of your way to incorporate them in your practice. One thing I want to say before we end the recording, because I'm not feeling well, you can probably tell from my voice, and even though I feel a bit bad that Leo isn't getting a lot of words today, and I'll encourage you, go check out the older episodes. I just need to practice what I preach and take care of myself. So, in Roman tradition, we see two major poets connecting the stars of Leo, Ovid to Bacchus, who was the Roman counterpart to Dionysus, and Manilius to Jupiter and Juno, so to Zeus and Hera. And the thing this ties beautifully with the retrograde in Taurus that is going on until the end of the year. Dionysus especially is one deity close to my heart, as he was the god of winemaking, orchards and fruit, vegetation, fertility, festivity, insanity, ritual madness, religious ecstasies, and most importantly, theatre. But you can see that all of the upcoming showers have a bit of a theme of reckless abandon in the mythology. In the Eleusian mystery, Dionysus is identified with Demeter's husband, and therefore presumably, because I mean it is Greek mythology we're talking about, the father of Persephone, which is kind of interesting given how the myth is so centered on the mother and daughter enmeshment that it's like she created her without natural birth. One thing about this deity that I want to point out, because it takes some of the heaviness of Scorpio season away, is that in the Roman tradition, it is the liberal father. And these festivals were a time that subserved class structures and gender structures, and they would not be dissimilar to what our culture sees 
things like Burning Man. And this is often a heavy tone to Scorpio and the 8th house and the idea of transformation, but it doesn't have to be. So this is relevant to the season, since we are about to journey from the second to last harvest festival that is taking place now, this, this is the week of the autumn equinox, to the last of the harvest festival, Sessawin. So this transition and transformation and celebration of the fertility we had witnessed in nature so far and there I say the one we are about to see in the September birth of next year because what are people to do in the cold and dreary winter when the sun sets at 3 p.m. but yeah red as a color and things like wine and the gems and incense we mentioned have a strong presence over October and November and that's some everyday stuff that you can use to connect to the stars that you may not immediately think about. It doesn't have to be a new practice that gives you anxiety because how do I incorporate it into the system I already have in place and such questions. It fits in easily. And if you have no system in place and you're here because you want to make star magic your thing, then the sky is the limit, quite literally. I hope this has been informative and inspiring and we will resume the standard theme of art, magic and creativity next week. Until then, keep living in wonder. Thank you for listening to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. A huge thank you to Jenna Sword at Jenna S-O-A-R-D on Instagram for the cover art and Papa Planet for the music. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be notified when a new one comes out, please subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you really love it, leave a five-star rating and review, which will help me be found by more people who will enjoy it too. Also, feel free to share it on social media and with anyone you think should give it a shot. You can send your questions and comments to my email starryskypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at starryskypodcast. And you can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter at witchymusings.substack.com where I share reflections and tips about the astrological seasons. Until next time!